All right, well, welcome to uh, our last uh, preaching sermon of our fall series in James. Uh, it's kind of weird thinking back all the way to the end of September when Shelton kicked us off talking about trials and perseverance. And some of you may be saying, no, this whole series has been a series of perseverance like we've endured. We've got all the way through it. Eight weeks is a long time to stay in a series. And I appreciate you guys uh, hanging with me and, and continue to come and watch online and, and being a part of this because the challenge of James is really our tagline for this entire series. It comes out of uh, James chapter 2, verse 22. It says, you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And that's the, that's the goal of James. That's what he's trying to communicate to us. That's what I've been trying to communicate to you over and over and over again is that we want a full and complete faith. We want you to live out uh, a life that reflects what you believe, what you say is most important. It reflects the gospel. Every decision that you make is in light of the gospel. And every conversation that you have points people to the gospel. James basically says if you believe it, then you'll live it. And it's really just that simple. And so today we're going to end this series talking about, uh, talking about a topic that's interesting. We're going to talk about integrity. And, and I know that most of us, when we hear the word integrity, we immediately think of two different things. One, the lack of integrity in other people. And two, the abundance of integrity in our own lives, right? And, and can I just say, we're wrong on both of those responses. 99% of the time, integrity is in many ways like Jesus spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount when he says we look for the speck in our brother's eye while ignoring the plank in our own. And too often, church people and church leadership and, and church membership have an assumption of abundance when in reality we're struggling to maintain an image of integrity in our real life. Today we're going to read... Uh, what James says, and he says that integrity really is an inside-out trait. Integrity is who you are when no one else is watching, and faith-centered integrity realizes that God is always watching. So if you've got your Bible, uh, let's go to James chapter 5. Now we're going to look at just a few verses here. James finishes his letter by addressing what I believe are three areas of integrity. Uh, I went through a couple of different options of how to name these. I thought, well, there'll be, you know, suffering, speech, and sin, or problems, public, and, spra and prayer. And I even went through uh, head, mouth, and heart. I thought, let's just get it as easy as possible. But I, I landed on these three, integrity in character, in speech, and in relationships. So those are, that's your outline for today. Uh, we're just going to work through each one of those. So for the first one, integrity in character, James chapter 5, verse 10 says this, brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we considered blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Now, when we say suffering, many people want to link suffering to persecution, right? It makes sense. We're persecuted for our faith. That equates into suffering. And I'll, I'll be honest, I, I wrote a, a whole section on, on this topic of persecution in the church and how uh, historical persecution of the church throughout the years. I've looked at martyrdom of believers. I've looked at 21st century uh, persecution from cancel culture and everything else that kind of goes along with all that. But James didn't say persecution. He said patience and suffering. 
Is that me? Okay, <laughs> patience and suffering. And he said, blessed are those who have persevered. And it hit me, right? Our integrity is tested the greatest when things that we want in the world that we live in do not go like we hoped or we planned and we suffer for it. That's important to note that when James says suffering, he's not talking about being inconvenienced. He's not talking about being overscheduled. He's not talking about being offended. He's also not talking about suffering because of our own ignorance or our own willfulness of sin, right? You're not suffering in the sense that James said that you're suffering because you got caught stealing from your company or you got caught cheating on your spouse. That's not the kind of suffering he's talking about. He's also not talking about if you're overcommitted your schedule and you'll have time to invest in your marriage or to invest in your kids. Maybe your relationships are suffering. Maybe your finances are suffering, but but not the kind of suffering that James is talking about. Matter of fact, this suffering has two distinct characteristics. One, it's, be, it's a suffering because of your faith, because of what you stand for, because of the convictions that you hold and the God-centered priorities of your life. He says, as an example, remember the prophets. Remember guys in the Old Testament, the guys who, who lived and died according to their faith, who stood up in front of the face of, of persecution, in front of the face of really the entire nation and said, we're wrong and we've got to fix this. Every Old Testament prophet that you read, even the minor prophets, major prophets, are all standing among a crowd of people and says, listen, what we're doing is not okay. And normally when people have that message, most people don't want to listen to it. He says, remember these guys. When we think about suffering for your faith, remember that James is addressing a group of individuals who are quite literally being cut off from their families. He's talking to the Jews who have converted to Christianity, who, who have stepped out in faith and said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to follow the teachings of this Christ character, this Jesus man who was the son of God, and everybody else in their family, if they weren't believers, cut them off. We're not going to associate with you anymore. So it has that characteristic. It's because of your faith. But even more, it's, it's wrapped in patience. Verse 10 said, brothers, is an example of patience in the face of suffering. And see, that's the hook. We, we suffer we just want it to end, right? Obviously, if you, get, if you go fishing and you get a hook in your finger, you want the hook out. If you have migraines and you're, you know, you're, you're bedridden with nausea and all that kind of stuff, you just want your headache to go away. If the doctor, if you go to the doctor, listen, this has happened to me. I love you, Hank. I went to the doctor and said, it hurts when I do that. And he looked at me and said, well, then don't do that, right? We don't want the suffering to continue. We want it to stop. It makes total sense. But James hits us in a different place when he says, patience in the face of suffering. How do you handle yourself when life isn't going according to your plan? Are you explosive? Are you, are you impulsive? Are you reactive? Are you impetuous? Do you kick the dog and slam the door and raise your voice to your spouse and snap at your kids? Do you cuss and berate? Do you wallow in self-pity? Do you question God and remind him of all the things that you do for him? How could he let that happen to you? Do you seek attention from others because of your suffering? Listen, this can happen in person or it can happen online. Can I 
I'm just going to get on a soapbox for just a second because I think this is so important. Do you know how many times that, that I've seen people post some ambiguous, like, my life is falling apart, please pray for me statement, and then get mad when people ask what's going on? They get, they get offended, like, this is my business, stop, stop asking me questions about it. Listen, stop doing that. Just, just stop doing that. We, as a society, have lost the ability to maintain interpersonal relationships. I don't, I don't know. We don't know how to talk to each other anymore. Instead, we, we interact through screens, and we barely uh, know people through a screen. Instead of in person, the Bible says that God spoke to Moses face-to-face as one man spoke to another. We need, I think we need more face-to-face interaction and less screen-to-screen interaction. And let me just say, I rarely get online anymore. Rarely. So if you, this is my disclaimer, if you or someone you know has posted something like that recently, I'm not calling anybody out. I don't know if you still do that or not. I don't don't look at, I I barely ever get on, because it's just all the same stuff over and over again. But the problem is, when we're suffering, we should have people like real-life people that we have deep relationships with that that we can call, that we can reach out to, that probably know us well enough that they know that we're suffering and they're just there. We should cultivate those kinds of relationships, real, honest, vulnerable, transparent relationships because when suffering comes, you've got people in your corner. You don't have to seek out attention for your suffering because people are already there. I, I, I don't understand where we've lost the ability to maintain those kinds of relationships. So I'm, I'm back off my soapbox. So all of that, are you patient in it? Are you explosive? Are you impetuous? Are you, are you seeking attention? Are you self-wallowing? Are, are you all those things or are you patient? See, integrity and godly character doesn't simply seek for suffering to end. It seeks to endure well. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John 16.33, Jesus says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Romans 5.3, Paul tells the Romans, We glory in our sufferings. In John 15, 18, Jesus says again, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. It's like suffering is inevitable, right? James's challenge is to suffer well, to endure well. And it's easy to put on a face in public, right? To put on a, put on a brave face or to smile through the pain and fake it till you make it. But, but when you're alone and when you're in when you're in your head and when you're in your heart, are you suffering well? Integrity and character means you don't blame others for your suffering. It means you don't blame God for your suffering. It just simply means that you pray and you seek his face and you're patient through it, knowing, knowing maybe God's trying to bring something out of you. See, we rarely stop 
and think, okay, God, if, if I'm having to go through this, then there's a purpose behind it. What's the purpose? I've told you guys before, when I'm sick, I, I, I sit around and think about what it's like to not be sick. Because <laughs> I just, oh, I took breathing through my nose for granted. God, I'll never take that for granted again. I think it's dumb. But rarely do we step back and think, okay, God, I'm in the middle of something right now, and it's hard, and I don't like it, and obviously I want you to, to work it out. But God, if you're trying to work something out in me, then tell me what it is. That's patience in suffering. And see, our knee-jerk reaction is, why? why would we patiently suffer? Who wants to do that? And he reminds us of Job, right? All that God brought about in his life, and James says this incredible statement, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. That, that word, full of compassion, it's all one big Greek word, and it's only used one time in Scripture, and it's right here. It means very tenderhearted, extremely compassionate, extremely full of pity. You know who knows that character straight about Jesus more than anybody else? James. You want to talk about suffering? You want to talk about dealing with some stuff? When you watch your brother die, claiming to be something that you didn't believe, and you grieve and you mourn the loss of your brother, and then the unthinkable happens. He comes back to life, right? He, he encounters you in this incredible resurrected moment. And, and he proves that he really was the son of God. He proves that he really was honest in everything that he said. And all that he caught and all that he claimed and all that he did was to provide right relationship with you and God the Father. You think James suffered? You think he dealt with guilt and shame and regret and embarrassment? I think he suffered emotionally and relationally and spiritually and mentally. And if James can write, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy, don't you think it's because he found that compassion and mercy? That he experienced that kind of compassion and mercy, that through his suffering and suffering well, they didn't spiral, and he didn't blame God, he didn't blame others, he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't blame everything else. He patiently endured. And his character was solidified, I believe, as integrous. Church, suffer well. We don't know what God is trying to produce in us. Suffer well. So we have integrity in character. The second one is integrity in speech. James chapter 5, verse 12. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, nor by heaven or by earth, nor by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. This is one of my favorite passages in James, right? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's like foundational elements and in integrity. You want to know why it's one of my favorites? Turn, if you've got your Bible, to Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus speaking, probably the most famous uh, epilogue of Jesus' uh, sermon ever. Uh, it's the longest one that we've got recorded for us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 Jesus says this, Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep your oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool. 
or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. James learned this from his big brother, right? He learned this from Jesus. This is not inherently James's idea. James didn't write that down and went, oh, man, I'm pretty good with that. Like he heard his brother say it. He, he heard Jesus say on the Sermon of the Mount, let your yes be yes and your no, no. And don't get lost in the verbiage of swearing by heaven or earth or anything else. This is, swearing an oath was a regular part of Jewish society. It was just like it is in ours, right? The bigger the oath, the bigger the thing that you're swearing upon, the more intense that you mean to keep the promise. They would swear by heaven. They would swear by uh, Jerusalem. They would swear, just like we do, cross my heart and hope to die. I swear on my mama's grave, and your mama's sitting two seats down from you. She's not even dead yet, and you're still swearing on it. This is the same kind of information, same kind of uh, mentality behind it. And, And James and Jesus, for that matter, are saying, if you live with integrity, then there's no reason to have to swear an oath at all. People will believe you. If you live with integrity, then what you say you will, you will. What you say you won't, you won't. And that's the kind of people that we're supposed to be. Integrity in speech. If there's anything that you can walk away with the sermon today, let it be this. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Stand for your convictions. Quit allowing excuses and circumstances in the crowd to change your mind and change your determinations and change ultimately you. Men, be a man. Stand up for what you believe. Act with integrity. Say that you're going to do something and then do it. Say that you're not going to do something and don't do it. When it comes, when it become okay to say one thing and then do something completely different. Literally, it's what James has been telling us this whole time, right? If you say your faith is important, then make it important. If you say you're going to believe in God, then believe in God. If you say you've committed your heart and life to him, then live like it. That's all James has been saying this whole time, and it translates into every area of our life. If you said, I do, to honor and sustain and cherish and sickness and health and poverty and wealth, the death you depart, then do it. If you said that it worked, what works for your family and how you want to raise your kids and the boundaries and the things that you say are okay and things that are not okay, then apply it. Just do it. If you said, listen, if you cross this line, there's consequences, then you've got to put the consequences in place. And, and everything else that we do, this is, the, this is the argument of everybody who's outside of the church against us is that we are hypocritical, right? We say one thing, but we actually do another. And James is saying, let your yes be yes and your no, no. That's simple. If you say you're going to do it, then do it. When we get to heaven, God's not going to look at us and ask us what everybody else did. He's going to look at us and ask us what we did. Did you say that you're going to do this? Did you do it? Did you say that you were against this? Did you stand against it? Or did you let the world around you and the people around you influence you and sway you and pull you one way or another? This affects everything from marriage and family, the church, to parenting, to your business, to your extended family, to what you allow, to what you're known for and your reputation. Integrity in speech is one of those issues that plagues the church on every level. We're claiming one thing and we're doing another. And you know what Jesus 
when he confronted individuals about this, you know what he called them? He called them things like blind guides, fools, whitewashed tombs, serpents, vipers, and unmarked graves. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Integrity in character, integrity in speech, and then finally, integrity in relationship. Keep reading verse 13. If anyone you is in trouble, he should pray. If anyone's happy, let him sing songs of praise. If anyone of you is sick, he should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he sinned, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Let me just say this and give some direction on this passage from, from the beginning. Number one, uh, God is the only one who heals, okay? Let's just make sure that we all understand that. God heals. We can and we should pray, but God heals. Number two, God is the only one who forgives. Right? We, can, we can and we should pray, uh, but forgiveness only comes when the individual repents for themselves. You can't do that for somebody else. Your prayer for them is a prayer that God would impress on their heart their need for repentance. And here's what I want you to hear from these verses. Integrity in relationship is both vertical and horizontal. James says if you're in trouble, pray. If you're happy, praise. If you're sick, be prayed over. Those are all vertical in nature, right? We're broken, sinful, finite beings. But we're also blood-bought, redeemed, forgiven members of the family of God. Because of Christ, we have the ability to have right relationship with the Father. Because of what Jesus did, we can do what Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence and find mercy and grace in our time of need. Right? We can do that. But how can we come and find mercy and grace to someone that we barely know? We've not developed relationship. We've not held relationship. This vertical has to be maintained on our end through our integrity. We stay in right relationship with Him. We seek Him out. We want His will and His plan for our life on our end. He is always maintained through integrity. Right? Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. He is the rock. His works are perfect. And all his ways are just a faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. Joshua chapter 21 verse 45. Not one of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 The one who calls you is faithful. Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. God will not fail us. But church, how many times have we failed him? How many times have we said that he is important and acted like he's not? How many times have we committed to him and his will? And when things get hard or when life comes at us or when we get, you know, we just basically decide that we didn't want to anymore and we changed our minds and we gave our hearts 
to other things and we prioritized our wants and our comfort and our popularity and our ease over Him. So when we speak about integrity in relationship vertically, it's on us every time. We're the ones who change. He is faithful. He keeps his promise. His integrity, uh, he acts to, with integrity through his word. He never changes. We do not. And we have to fix this. We have to do better. We have to honor the sacrifice that he made for us to be in right relationship with him. Integrity in relationship is vertical and it's horizontal. Notice what James told us to do. Call the elders. Pray over them. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. How can we do this unless we're in right relationship with each other? This goes back to my little soapbox earlier, right? We have to cultivate real, honest, vulnerable relationships within the church. Because if, if you don't know this, we need each other, right? The, the Bible speaks about the body of Christ, about the, the hands and the feet and the ears and the eyes and all that kind of stuff. And when it's not in working in conjunction with each other, the whole body suffers. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter of the Bible, the one that we quote at every marriage ceremony that we've ever done. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it is not rude, right? We know that passage of Scripture. That passage that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth is not talking about marriage relationships. It's talking about how the church should treat each other. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not keep a record of wrongs. I've got a list of five men that I pray for and I text weekly. Matter of fact, I'll give, uh, I'll give the credit to this. Uh, uh, Taylor Wharton started doing this with me a long time ago. He would text me on a Monday morning, how can I pray for you this week? And, and I got convicted. <laughs> I thought, well, I don't do that. <laughs> I mean, I pray for people in our church, but I don't like, I don't like every Monday morning at 7 o'clock. And so I took what he was doing and I applied it in my own heart. And so I got a list of five guys that I text on Mondays. Uh, guys who are in our church, guys who are pastors of other churches, guys who are doing a lot of different things, missionaries. I got all, I got all kinds of different people, five men, that I know each week they're going to ask me how they can pray for me and I can ask them how that I can pray for them. That they know what's going on in my life. They know what's going on in my heart. We don't give just pat answers to each other. Um, I know that at any moment I could call any one of those five men and they would do whatever they can do for me. You know, when we were, when I started the ministry, I had a number of different people tell me, like, be prepared to be lonely. You can't have friends in the ministry. <laughs> and, and, like, I have some of the closest friends of my life who are part of this church. People that we do life with that, that know us. And, and these men... We've developed an honest, real relationship with each other because I need it, right? We are designed for community. We are designed to do life together. From the very beginning, God looked at Adam and said, it's not good for man to be alone, right? 
Remember, Adam was the only living human being on the planet, and God paraded all the animals in front of him, and they found no one who was suitable for him, right? And, and, and God gives Adam Eve and blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply. This is exactly what's supposed to happen right here. Genesis chapter 1 is incredible. He, he, matter of fact, he even gives Adam and Eve dominion over creation. He says, you can uh, rule over the fish and the birds and the plants and the beasts and the creatures and all this kind of stuff. Not over each other, but over everything else. And then Genesis chapter 3 happens. And we mess it all up, right? We've, we've read this a hundred times. Fall of man, the introduction of sin. God hands out the consequence of sin. And to Eve, he says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now that word desire is not like a, not a passionate desire. It's not a romantic desire. It's a desire to rule. God looks at Eve and says, you want to rule him, but he's going to rule you. There's enmity in relationship for the very first time. There's friction in relationship for the very first time. There's strain and there's hurt feelings and there's he said and she said and finger pointing and you hurt me, I'll hurt you kind of mentality introduced by sin. And the reality is we've been dealing with the relational fallout ever since. And James is telling us to have integrity in relationship, mend and repair and forgive and ask for forgiveness because we need each other. We, we, we cannot isolate ourselves in a world that demands so much from us, that pulls so much from us, that when we are suffering, we feel like we're alone. James says, we can't, we can't live like that. We've got to pray for each other. We've got to call in the elders. We've got to do the things we've got to do because we need the community of the church. Verse 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. I memorized that verse in the King James. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I didn't know what it meant, but I memorized it. It means when we pray for each other, God moves in incredible ways. We're in right relationship with each other. We have people in our life, in our corner, that we can do life with. Man, I need that. I need people praying like that for me. And guess what? You need people like that too. We can't experience it when we're at odds with each other, when we're holding grudges and petty arguments and old wounds. When you're fighting over things that you've been fighting over for years, when you've been trying to deal with things that you're never going to forgive and you're never going to get over, we gotta, we got to work towards reconciliation. And James is telling us, listen, integrity in relationship is not only vertical, but it's also horizontal. We've got to seek community within the church. It means we've got to get off our screens and get face-to-face. We've got to We've got to humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness. And we've got to humble ourselves and offer forgiveness. Integrity and character and in speech and in relationship. We've got, to do, we've got to do better. It's, it's so simple. And over the last two months, we've been 
looking at the book of James, and we've been felt this push to obedience and this push to live out an act of faith and to live out what we believe. And it's no coincidence that James ends with these three areas of integrity. Because James himself ends with integrity. Here's what we know kind of after the book of James. told you, I think, last week that James was probably the one who wrote first. He wrote early, um, maybe even early 40s. James's book just ends giving an example of, of Elijah and, and praying and uh, praying for each other and lifting each other up. What we know after this is that James died in AD 62. About 30 years past Jesus' death, James dies. And Acts chapter 21, verse 17 through 20 talks about Paul coming to Jerusalem and meeting with James. And, and it says he met with James and the elders, meaning that James is kind of the, the head of what's going on in Jerusalem. This is Paul, this guy who used to be named Saul who was a professional killer of Christians and persecutor of the church, is now getting the approval of James, the leader in the church of Jerusalem. He's out front, right? And the whole world at this point is kind of against James. In Acts chapter 21, verse 20, or verse 30 through 36, some of the Jews misinterpret Paul's presence there. And they get really upset. They beat him. The, the guards come and they arrest him and they start to carry him away. And Paul plays his Roman card, right? I'm a Roman citizen, which all the guards kind of back off of. I didn't know that. And, and Paul addresses the crowd in, in verse 20, uh, chapter 23, verse 12. And the crowd just goes crazy because at the end of that, he says something about how the gospel has been presented to the Gentiles. And the Jews just hated it. They lost their minds. And it says that... Um, the next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy. They bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Paul, this, this same guy that just got the nod from James to go. He's like, man, whatever you're doing, you're doing well. Go. Paul eventually goes to the governor. Now, when you think about the governor, his name was Felix. Uh, the governor is uh, the equivalent of Pontius Pilate in the story of the Passion of Christ. Okay? So when you think about that authority, think about Felix with the same. Uh, Paul goes to see Felix. Felix is eventually uh, replaced with Festus, not from Gunsmoke, not the donkey from Gunsmoke, but his name was Festus. Uh, and uh, Festus sends Paul by ship to Rome, where you Played your Roman card, you're going to Rome, right? Paul eventually will end up in house arrest in Rome. Now, Festus dies. And his successor is a guy by the name of Albanius. You don't care about that. But between Festus and his successor, there's a high priest that kind of wants to, wants to rule, wants to get a little bit of power. His name is Ananias II. Now, um, Jewish nationalism is rising like there's this there's this sense of Jewish pride but they're still under Roman rule and this high priest wants to make a name for himself and so to gain some fame he gathers several popular leaders who quote posed threats to patriotism and of course one of those people 
was James. And Ananias II gathers James up. And Josephus, who's a first century Jewish historian, writes this. A formal Sanhedrin trial was called an indictment brought against James and the others for offenses against the law. (laughs) Of all things, James is being charged with offenses against the law. The one thing that he has the most respect for in everything that he says and does. They're, They're gathering this case against him. Most people believe that 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 charge against James was because of his acceptance of Paul. He says, listen, because you did this for him and the Gentiles, we're going to charge you with this against the law. Eventually, Ananias' plan backfires, but not in time for James. There's a couple of options that show how James actually died. One of them says that he was stoned to death with either his hands tied or buried in the sand. He couldn't defend himself. But Eusebius, is another um, church father, says this. Quote, they brought him into the midst and demanded a denial of the faith in Christ before all the people. James's response, Eusebius says, with a loud voice and with more courage than they had expected, He confessed before all the people that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Quote, why are you asking me about the Son of Man? He is seated in heaven at the right hand of great power and will come again on the clouds of heaven. Eusebius says the Jewish mob was so enraged, quote, they could no longer endure his testimony since he was by all men believed to be most righteous. Because of the height in which he had reached in life of philosophy and religion. So they killed him in an opportune moment. James, Eusebius writes, was hurled down from the temple pinnacle and clubbed to death for his audacity. That means they pushed him off of the top of the temple. The top of the temple butts up next to the Kidron Ravine. There's 450 feet difference from the top of the temple to the bottom of the ravine. Paul fell, or James fell, four and a half stories to his death. And then when he fell, they beat him to death. All because... He wouldn't deny who his brother was. It's interesting. In Matthew chapter 4, when the Satan is tempting Jesus, he takes him to the temple pinnacle, to the same place, and, and dares Jesus to jump off, quoting Scripture saying that the angels will not allow your foot to hit a stone. And Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Remember that? James dies the same place his brother was tempted and did not fail. He endured that temptation. James did too. He lived and he taught and he died with integrity, his character, speech, and relationship. And, you know, part of our story is not unlike James's. 
that we come to Jesus once unbelieving and we encounter this resurrected Christ that, that does everything, include changes us. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is are we going to take our faith as seriously as James did? See, James said, if you believe it, then you just live it. If you believe it, you stand for it, and you don't cower from it, and you don't wave with the crowd, and you don't bend to what everybody else wants. You stand for what's right, and even through his death, he stood for what he believed in. This is not somebody who's writing words on a paper and then living something completely different. James is living and dying by what he, what he wrote. Are we going to take our faith as seriously as James did? Are we going to obey it even when it gets difficult? Are we going to prioritize it even when nobody else does? And are we going to live it even if it costs us everything? That's the message of James. Integrity. In character and in speech and in relationship. Will you stand with me as we pray? Maybe this morning you've kind of been challenged a little bit about how you've been dealing with some suffering. Maybe you've been challenged in how you've dealt with relationships or maybe even just the vertical relationship between you and God. And, and, and you know that, that approaching his throne of grace where we find mercy feels awkward because we've not kept relationship with God as a priority in our life. Maybe today is a day that you can fix all that. Maybe it's relationally horizontal. You've got to fix some relationships with people in the church. Today's the day you can fix all that. Or maybe you've just been kind of punched in the gut about how what you say and what you do don't always line up. Today's the day you can fix all that. We're going to pray. TJ's going to sing. And we're going to give an opportunity just to respond to God's word. And it's not just to sit here until we're done. It's not a white knuckle moment. This is a moment to actually deal with what God is dealing with you. Maybe you just need to have an attitude of suffering that's patient. Willing to see what God's trying to develop. But are you willing to change what he's trying to pull out of you? Don't miss your chance today to respond in faith to what God is doing. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for today. Thank you for the message of James over the last two months that we've been in this, God. I, I know it's been challenging. I know that we've kind of been knocked around a little bit. But God, that's the truth of your word and that's how, how it changes us and challenges us. And so, Father, today as we've wrapped up, I, God, I just pray that, that we can be men and women of integrity. We can live our lives with conviction. That we can stand for what is right, stand against what is wrong. And that we can stand up for our faith and actually live it out. Let it be a part of who we are. Not just something that we do, but who we are. Father, we don't elevate James past where he's supposed to be. We don't put him on a pedestal because he was a flawed man just like us. But he followed Jesus. He gave his life and his heart and his death to the belief that he had when he met his resurrected Lord.
God, I pray that we can live lives like that. God, if there's areas of our life this morning that we need to confess, that we need to change, that we need to ask for forgiveness for, God, if there's, if there's an area that we need to come and just pray at the altar for, God, if we need to join the church, if we need to really seek out this God who saves, then God, today's the opportunity to deal with all of that. Let's not miss an opportunity to respond to what you're, what you're bringing out of us. God, help us to act with integrity to this moment. It's in Jesus' name we pray.